0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
1: Welcome back to the UCLA Endocrinology Group's Behind the Knife episode. We're really lucky today to have Dr. Kapal Patel as our guest here. He's the chief of the Division of Endocrine Surgery and a professor of surgery otolaryngology and biochemistry at NYU Langone. For me, this is particularly exciting because I went to med school at NYU and I remember scrubbing in with him and getting asked a bunch of questions about 90s rap and maybe one (laughs) or two questions about endocrine (laughs) surgery. He's the director of the Thyroid Interdisciplinary Program and has particular expertise in the multidisciplinary treatment of thyroid and parathyroid disease, along with other head and neck tumors. He's also the director of mentoring and faculty development in the Department of Surgery. His work has been recognized by numerous awards from prestigious societies. He currently serves in multiple leadership roles, both locally and nationally, and he's on the editorial boards of several prominent journals. He has over 75 peer-reviewed publications, 12 book chapters, over forty invited, and over 40 invited lectureships. He was most recently the first author of the first AAES Comprehensive Guidelines for Thyroid Surgery. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you. We also have our usual cast and crew, Attendings, Dr. Ye, Dr. Livis, Dr. Wu, endocrine surgery, fellow Vivek, myself, and Max Shum, GenSurge residents, and we have the study coordinator for the UCLA Endocrine Surgery Research Group, Elena, joining us here as well. So let's go ahead and dive right into our cases. The first case today is an otherwise healthy 33-year-old male who self-palpated a neck mass a few months ago. His PCP sent him for a neck ultrasound that revealed two left thyroid nodules as well as an enlarged left central and lateral neck lymph nodes. There were no right-sided thyroid nodules seen. Fine needle aspiration was consistent with medullary thyroid cancer. The patient's having no voice changes and no other symptoms. So Vivek, just starting with this limited information, can you tell us what your next steps would be as you begin his workup?
2: Sure,
3: so uh, this is a little different than our most common papillary thyroid cancer, but the workup is, still fairly similar. Uh, I would perform my own comprehensive ultrasound, look at the thyroid, again, assess for the nodules, and assess for central and lateral neck disease. Uh, We do have some reports here, but I would confirm that myself. Additionally, for medullary thyroid cancer, there are a few other things we would like to do. We would like to send some blood work, tumor markers, things like calcitonin, CEA, uh, as well as send this patient for genetic testing evaluation. Uh, finally, depending on some of the tumor marker levels, especially if there's a mismatch between the levels and the volume of disease we see in the neck, uh, we may consider additional cross-sectional imaging to assess for metast- uh, distant metastatic disease.
1: Thanks. And just as a reminder um, for me, when I hear medullary thyroid cancer, I think about the MEN syndromes. I'll refer you to our second uh, podcast where we talk more in detail about genetic testing and about those syndromes. So as uh, some of the answers to your workup. So his calcitonin was elevated. It was 1,700. The CEA was elevated as well. It was 17. The genetic testing for this patient is pending. He had no reported family history. So for imaging, um, we got a CT and MRI of the neck. It shows left central and lateral. Neck nodes. There was prominent bilateral level two lymph nodes, and then there was no lymph nodes seen um, on the right side on further imaging or on ultrasound that you did in clinic. His CT chest is negative. So I'm going to turn it over to the attendings uh, now. So where do we go from here? What's the what's the next step? Any further workup you would want, or would you go straight to surgery? And if so, what surgery? All
0: right. Well, I guess I'll uh, I'll take the. Uh for staff that does I agree with uh, everything that's been said. Um, I think in a young patient like this with medullary thyroid cancer, you know, family history is critical. Um, you know, a patient does not have any family history of, of, of medullary thyroid cancer, but still I think you haven't completely, fully ruled out a, a familial uh, syndrome here. So, you know, it, the mutational studies are still pending, but for this patient, I would still work the patient up for a potential MEN 2A uh, uh, with a workup for fear chromocytoma. Uh, parathyroid disease. Uh, just to make sure that before you take this patient to the that we don't end up in a in a situation that you don't want to be in. Uh, so, um, so assuming that we do that workup, and the workup comes back negative, and this happens to be a sporadic uh, medullary thyroid uh, carcinoma, um, you know the calcitonin level is concerning for distant metastatic disease. It's relatively high, but your imaging studies have kind of ruled that out. Uh, but that wouldn't mean that you don't have microscopic metastatic diseases, you're just not necessarily picking up or seeing right now. Um, but um, but once you've kind of confirmed that this is mo- most likely a-, a sporadic situation, I think uh, surgical planning would be in uh, the-, the next step in this patient's care.
1: Would you consider doing a flexible laryngoscopy for this patient?
0: Yes, that's a great question. So, you know, in, in general, you know, voice assessment is necessary for every patient undergoing uh, thyroid surgery and, and the way you define voice asses- assessment can vary. Uh, for most patients, it's just talking to them about their voice and seeing if they have a normal voice and they have no history of hoarseness or any difficulty uh, speaking or swallowing. Um, in patients who do have locally advanced disease and you who do have central compartment disease where you are worried potentially that, they, that the nerve uh, could be involved, then I think uh, you know doing a formal uh, evaluation of the vocal cords is absolutely reasonable. Uh, patients who obviously have had prior neck surgery clearly need the vocal cord assessment, the large goyers, you know, uh, locally advanced disease, like I said, I think it's reasonable. Uh, for this patient, you know, depending on the volume of central neck disease, I don't think it's unreasonable to do a fibro-optic laryngoscopy, uh, just to confirm that the vocal cords are moving. My, my guess is, based on what you're telling me, the patient having no symptom the date of 35, he probably has normal vocal cord motion.
1: So let's say for this patient laryngoscopy is performed <clears throat> it was negative as you hypothesized based on his symptoms his age etc. So moving forward and again you know throwing this out to anyone what surgery does this patient get
2: Hey guys it's Michael um just before we get to surgery there's a, a couple comments here so whenever you have a biopsy that shows medullary thyroid carcinoma uh, board answer always go straight run the 24 hour urine metanephrines and catecholamines just reflexively, all right? This is a young patient. Remember that medullary thyroid carcinomas, if you have that diagnosis, 25% are familial. The sporadic ones tend to occur around age 50. That's the median age. So this patient's 33, right? So greatly increases the pretest probability of a familial syndrome, all right? The last thing, and I'm, you know, it's important to refer to the ATA medullary thyroid carcinoma guidelines. I got to say, I don't fully follow them. So in the medullary thyroid carcinoma guidelines, you know, something that's upfront is genetic testing and to get the answer for genetic testing and act on that. That's upstream of surgery, I think, in the guidelines. And then there's based on the calcitonin, different cutoffs. Do you stage the patients, look for distant disease before surgery? I, I personally do not wait for the genetic test. Um, and I personally do not stage for distant Mets up front because I think you're going to operate on the patient no matter what, uh, regardless of these these outcomes. Um, I want to point out to the audience that the calcitonin of 500 cutoff. In this case, it is 1,700. 500 is such a useful 50 is a useful number. 500 is a useful number. Above 50 helps you confirm the diagnosis, right? Above 500 means it's outside of the neck. Below 500 usually within the neck. And there's another cutoff that I, I don't remember. Uh, people use for more likely to have lymph yeah. nodes in the yeah. neck. Yeah, do you remember? Two, 200. 200, yeah. Uh, so those things are all important in walking in, but here you, you seem to have ideally a, 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 a non-Pheo uh, patient who, who needs surgical management of a medullary carcinoma. And Marsha looks like she wants to say something.
4: Just as a slightly <laughs> contrary opinion, because <laughs> that's always fun, um, I do think if the calcitonin is very elevated, um, it, it can be useful to look for distant metastatic disease. It may inform you know how aggressive you are during surgery. Um, if you know that there is distant metastatic disease, depending on what you find, you know you may be I think potentially a little less aggressive. I don't think it would stop you from operating on this patient. They do need local control, uh, but there may be things that happen intraoperatively that you might change a little bit if you know that there's. Metastatic disease. Um, And then going to the question of the extent of surgery. Um, You know, for differentiated thyroid cancer, papillary thyroid cancer, there's so many options now. um, And a lot of talk about when do we do lobectomy, we don't do prophylactic central neck dissection, It's very different from medullary thyroid cancer. Um, In general, we usually perform a total thyroidectomy for patients that we know have medullary thyroid cancer ahead of time. uh, The recommendations are at least ipsilateral, usually bilateral uh, central neck dissection, even prophylactic. Um, And then in this patient, we know they have lateral neck disease on the one side, so we definitely need to do, you know, full compartmental lateral neck dissection on that side. Um, And then the other side, you know, I agree, uh, based on the guidelines, if the calcitonin is over 200, there's some consideration to doing even a prophylactic uh, contralateral nephrectomy. section I don't I don't do that um, I really base it on the imaging um, and if the ultrasound is really clean on that other side then I wouldn't even enter that compartment uh, up front
0: yeah I completely I completely agree with your with your, with your thoughts on that um, you know, the other thing just to, just to keep in mind also is you know with these with these patients you know the reason why surgery is so critical and the extent of surgery is so important is, you know, unlike papillary thyroid cancer, or well-differentiated thyroid cancers, where you have re- a really good adjuvant treatment to offer these patients with greater divide we don't have that with medullary thyroid cancer. So really, it is a surgical disease at the end of the day, and to remove, basically, the surgical volume of that disease is, is critical, so really, your, your surgical planning ends up becoming really important. You did mention that the patient had bilateral level two lymph nodes. Uh, often, in young patients, these are reactive. You, we often see bilateral level two lymph nodes that are reactive. Um, with a calcitonin of a 1700, I don't think it's unreasonable if you want to do a quick needle biopsy in the contralateral neck just to confirm whether that level 2 lymph node is metastatic or not, because that will change your surgical plan at that point, um, I think it's, it, it's, it's absolutely reasonable. And often even with those needle biopsies, I'll to often even do a calcitonin washout of my, of my needle biopsy, right? You stick the needle in the node, you get the cytology, but you also take that same needle, wash it, and send it off for calcitonin. And if the laboratory calls you back and says the calcitonin level is really high, then that, that's metastatic medullary cancer. So I think that's a little trick that you can use. But in this patient, I would just, normally I don't often biopsy level two lymph nodes, but they're almost always reactive on the sonogram. You have a nice fatty hilum; it looks reactive, but in this particular patient, I would probably err on the side of just biopsying that node.
1: What we've spent a lot of time talking about on this podcast is which operation to perform for cancer. And I actually noticed a lot of questions on the ab site this last year that go over it. So I kind of heard from Masha that a total thyroidectomy is for medullary thyroid cancer is the operation of choice. Um, given the neck findings for this patient, what else would, would you want to add in addition to that?
4: So I think I you know had mentioned prophylactic central neck dissection, uh, at least ipsilateral, generally considered bilateral, but we have to think about the risk of hypoparathyroidism in there. So I think that can be somewhat of an intraoperative decision. And then the choice of lateral neck dissection
1: based on the imaging findings, you know, if you have clinical disease, particularly based on ultrasound. Okay, great. So we made the decision to go ahead to the operating room. Dr. Phil. I'm not sure if you caught our heated debate on our last episode, but we spent, uh, Michael and James almost got into a fight about the use of the nerve monitor. Oh, yes. <laughs> Would you, for this case, use a nerve monitor? So... Now, full
0: disclosure, I use a nerve monitor for every case. <laughs> um, I, is it necessary for every case? No, I, I will tell you about that. It's not necessary for every case, but I do use it for every case. I, it's For me, it's just there and it's nice to use and I have that fallback option. Um, you know, Just to kind of go off topic just a little bit, in, You know, in my experience and, and the reason for, for using a nerve monitor is really not to help identify the nerve as much as it is to help confirm nerve integrity So, especially in patients where I'm doing a total thyroidectomy, let's say I have a a completely unrelated case, like a patient with Graves' disease, I'm doing a total thyroidectomy, and the operation is going fine, and I take out the right side of the thyroid, and the nerve looks intact, but I've lost my signal. (laughs) That patient, I can potentially stop that operation at that point, let that nerve recover, as long as that nerve has not been cut or, or damaged permanently, that nerve should recover, wait a couple of weeks, confirm that the nerve is working, do an laryngoscopy in the office, and I can always stage that procedure, bring the patient back and take out the other side safely. Now, you can argue that, you know, if you're a safe surgeon can do it all at the same time, you'll be fine, true, but but doing it this way, you can almost say that you're unlikely to get bilateral nerve injury in that situation because you know that one nerve is not working, take out the other side, even if the other nerve gets damaged, your first nerve is working again. So that's really, to me, the strength of the nerve monitor in this case, is it really going to change my management? You know, this patient, as, as, as Masha said, needs a total thyroidectomy, uh, needs a, a, a lateral neck dissection on the left side, and I would do a bilateral central neck dissection. You already have gross disease in the central neck already, mm-hmm. um, so I, I would, you know, try to remove all disease, obviously making sure that my parathyroid glands are okay and talking to the patient preoperatively about that risk and even being prepared to do autotransplantation of the parathyroid glands if you, if you have to. Uh, I would use a nerve monitor, honestly, just to kind of confirm that, that, that those nerves are working, are working well. Um, but yeah, so I don't know if that answered your question or not, But yes, I, I would use a nerve monitor. <laughs> <laughs> Good
1: answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, going right off of that, um, you know, we're you're in the operation right now. You're performing a thyroidectomy. You're focused on the left side, but it's clear there that there's some gross extra thyroidal extension. You're using the nerve monitor, as you do routinely. There is an intact signal when you start, but the nerve is caught between the central neck nodes and the thyroid. And as you're performing the dissection, you lose your signal. At this point, how do you make the decision? How do you decide how to handle the nerve? Where, where do you prioritize a clean resection versus preserving the nerve?
0: So is the nerve completely invaded, or, is, is there, or, or do I, can, can I get all gross disease off? Let's say, still preserve the nerve.
1: Sure, let's say it would be tricky to get the, all of the gross disease off the
0: nerve. So, for medullary thyroid cancer, like I started saying from the beginning, you know, we don't have a good actual treatment for these patients, right? This is not papillary thyroid cancer where I can say, well, if I shave the tumor off the nerve, maybe I can treat with radioactive iodine and, and potentially, you know, prevent, you know, uh, you know resecting the nerve. Um, but for this patient, if I really feel that I can't get all the gross disease off without resecting the nerve, then then I would, I would resect the nerve. I, okay. I would not, I, the goal in this patient is to get all the gross disease out of that central neck. This patient is 35 years old, persistent disease is, is, it's a surgical problem. You're not really going to be able to treat it well. This will grow. It will start invading into other vital structures into the central neck over time. So in my opinion, you know, the 35 year old with a calcitonin of 1700, this is, this disease is telling you that its biology is not favorable. So I, I would, I would sacrifice the nerve if I have to. Conversely, if I can safely remove all the disease off that nerve and preserve that nerve, and knowing I got all gross disease out, do that central neck, take out that lobe, and if I lost my signal, but I know that nerve is intact, I would complete the lateral neck dissection on that side as well at that point. okay. So my left side is completely cleaned; All gross disease has been removed. I only have a normal appearing right lobe to come back to. I would potentially think about staging that operation.
1: So that was gonna be my next question for the group <clears throat> then. If you, if you have lost the signal, um, you know, do you go ahead and do the contralateral lobe?
0: Right, so like I said, if, if all gross disease has been removed and it's just a matter of having that nerve recover, mm-hmm. you can always bring that patient back in a couple of weeks and take out the other lobe. It's not gonna affect the overall prognosis of that patient as long as all that gross disease has been removed. But like I said, once again, I'm gonna make it clear, if that nerve is invaded, resect it. What about in that second oh. scenario where nerve is invaded, you've resected
3: it, no nerve on the left side, what are you going to do about the other side?
0: You do the operation yourself. Don't let the fellow, the resident do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you're going to be nervous for the next hour until that other lobe comes out. <laughs> just, just you know, you do what you do best. You know, you're, you're a good surgeon. Take care of the other side. You have to take it off. I'll take
3: it Let me ask you a follow-up question to that, Then, Why are you doing the other side? What are you worried about, about a normal thyroid lobe on the other half?
0: Well, in general, so medullary thyroid cancers could can be multifocal, number one, right? So, you know, you know, you don't know. This patient does not seem to have a familial component. Clearly, if was familial, the other side needs to, needs to come out. The patient will develop a disease on the other side. It's 35 years old, right? Um, and so, I think, you know, once again, the best bet that this patient has is to remove, you know, the total thyroid and really, you know, follow this patient. You've got to follow calcitonin postoperatively, which you really can't really effectively do either with a lobe in there, right? That's going to be one of your biomarkers that you use to follow the patient. So I think for all those reasons, you know, this patient needs a total thyroidectomy. If you had to resect a nerve on one side, then you just be very careful on the other side.
2: Yeah, I agree with most of this stuff, except for maybe the nerve monitor <laughs> stuff. And I just want to say, for, for the record, that nobody would watch a brawl between Wu and Ye on page That would be a terrible fight. Okay? Uh, but in terms of uh, unilateral versus bilateral surgery, in this country... We do total thyroidectomy and sometimes bilateral central neck dissection for medullary thyroid carcinoma. In Japan, there's a significant literature on unilateral surgery for medullary carcinoma, which consists of a lobectomy and a central neck and sometimes a lateral neck dissection. And their long-term outcomes from the Kuma Clinic are superb. So I just want to throw a little wrench in this at the risk of introducing too much complexity that I was recently referred to a case just like this, where they had done a lobectomy for an uncertain diagnosis, right? And let's imagine there was loss of signal. They stopped the operation. 1.5 centimeter intrathyroidal medullary thyroid carcinoma. The patient comes to my clinic, measure the calcitonin. It's zero. Should, and the patient who is a nurse asked me, should I go back for a completion thyroidectomy? I was like, no. no, what could be the argument to do that? <laughs> and then she went back to her first surgeon and said, Dr. Yang says I don't need the completion, and they just about went ballistic. <laughs> so no, but I think, I think you bring up a great point. So, you know, um, but that's that's a different biology
0: of disease. This your patient, You're talking about a patient here who already has metastatic, significant metastatic lateral and central nodal disease, right? So it's analogous to incidental medullary found, which I've had happen several times where you do, you know, uh, surgery for a goiter or for papillary cancer, and the pathologist tells you, oh, there's a nine millimeter incidental medullary carcinoma. I'm done with that patient. I'm not taking that patient back to take out the other side, you know? And so I think in that situation, I absolutely agree. I think a lobectomy is completely reasonable. Um, but I think yeah, for to this more situation, situations a little, yeah.
3: I mean, I, I would be the contrary for this particular case, because I would imagine that, granted, the is 1700, could be, the recurrence could be lateral neck, Could be distant, could be somewhere, could be contralateral thyroid and another medullary, but until we have sonographic evidence of a nodule on the other side forming, or something like that that you're going to like you know treat, uh, then we're still putting this patient at risk for a tracheostomy and a bilateral nerve problem, uh, for a benefit that is I don't know, because I think we could probably measure calcitonins even with a low bin because we measure calcitonins with the whole thyroid
0: yeah you can't i mean but, but you know somebody who has potentially you know 1700 calcitonin i'm pretty confident that that patient post if you just did a little bit and left the other a little bit in it's going to be much more difficult to kind of see where that calciton is going to go at that point um and it's probably still going to be elevated right because it's 1700 that means you know it's unlikely going to get out of zero um so um yeah i mean you know but i think the board answer would still be due to total thyroidectomy. <laughs> <laughs> so so for all the trainees out there, if you're sitting for the oral boards and you get this question, I think, be safe, safe, total thyroidectomy. Listen, Doctor
3: Kimmel. It's all for the boards to pick it up.
1: I love this. I think it's always a great reminder that there's no there's no easy answers, and and everything you're doing has to be based on what you're physically seeing in the operating room, what the pa- you know patient factors, discussion with the patient ahead of time, and It's just never cut and dry in surgery, which is part of the exciting thing about it. Um, So I think the quick learning points for the residents that I got from this, the first is whenever you see a medullary uh, thyroid cancer, especially in a younger patient, do the full genetic workup, uh, including all the labs and imaging that you need for these patients. Uh, Thinking about upfront what surgery you want to be considering and offering, obviously tailored based on what we find in the operating room. Um, and then the concept of following calcitonin levels post-operatively as well to understand um, your extent disease.
3: And, and to punch on the point that K. Paul and Masha made, it, the the first thing to do is rule out pheo before
0: yeah. doing surgery. <clears throat> yeah. The other one of the this about medullary thyroid cancer. The other thing to remember is that often the FNA biopsy may not come back medullary, right? So if it's something that's atypical and your cytopathologist tells you that this is a malignancy, but I see round blue cells or something that looks like a neuroendocrine tumor, um, in your mind, you should start thinking medullary thyroid cancer because that's it's, it's not that clear cut. And you have a center where you have experienced cytopathologists, they'll say medullary thyroid cancer, but I've seen multiple times the biopsy being read as, as just atypical cells, abnormal cells, cannot rule out malignancy, and the patient has metastatic disease and lymph nodes, you gotta think of yourself as medullary thyroid cancer.
5: All right, great. We're gonna move on to case number two here. Um, this is a 46 year old female who comes into your office. She underwent a recent FNA of a 1.5 centimeter thyroid nodule where the cytology resulted as Bethesda 3, which as a reminder is either atypia of undetermined significance or follicular lesion of undetermined, or undetermined significance. The outside hospital where she underwent this testing does not have molecular testing available does not have uh, molecular testing available, but she read about it on, on the internet. So what do you tell your patient, and do you typically recommend a repeat FNA or just proceed to the operating room at this point?
0: So, I mean, it's a, you know, a great question. I see this very, very frequently. Um, you know, 1.5 centimeter probably, I don't know if it's palpable or incidentally found um, nodule, probably often incidentally found. Um, I'm assuming the patient has no symptoms, and there are no other clinical findings and the sonogram doesn't show I mean, from a sonographic standpoint I really kind of put a lot of uh, faith in, in, into my imaging study so sonographically this clearly looks like a malignancy that may sway me one way or the other right but if it looks like a you know a relatively you know bland nodule and this happens to be bethesda three we know that the malignancy rate is going to be anywhere in the order of 10 to 15 percent and and repeating uh, a biopsy in that situation is absolutely reasonable. I don't think this patient needs to be rushed to the operating room at all. I don't think the patient needs you know, immediate molecular uh, testing done. Uh, you know, this is a, like an incidental, most like an incidental thyroid nodule with no other clinical findings, and if sonographically I'm not worried, then I think it's completely reasonable to to have the patient come back, evaluate, repeat the biopsy. I think that that that's a reasonable approach. Um, you
3: know, I know that. Uh, UCLA, we're just starting to do active surveillance for some patients with proven cancer. Um, are you guys doing active surveillance? And, and if so, will you actively monitor an indeterminate thyroid nodule?
0: So we are doing, yeah, so we, we are definitely doing active surveillance. Now, the difference between this, you know, in, in active surveillance is that it's, it's really reasonable for papillary thyroid cancers, right? The problem with the indeterminate nodules is when, they're, when they are malignant, they're often not papillary cancers. Papillary cancers is an easy diagnosis to make on cytology, right? It's the follicular lesions that they can't really make the diagnosis on cytology. And that's why you have the follicular lesion of undetermined significance, follicular neoplasm. And so active surveillance for follicular tumors has never really been shown to be beneficial. We don't know what the results are. Follicular cancer can can spread, and you may just totally miss it because it can remain small and have distant metastasis. It's not gonna spread to regional lymph nodes, right? And so I don't think people have any data on active surveillance of follicular lesions versus active surveillance of papillary cancer. You almost feel more comfortable following a cancer than a follicular lesion.
4: I think this is something that's very hard to wrap your head around, you know, that if you know it's a cancer, it could be okay for active surveillance, but if it's an indeterminate nodule with a 15% risk of malignancy, we're not comfortable with that. Um, You know, everything makes sense um, that you said, uh, but it's just kind of hard to wrap your head around. And I think it's somewhere, you know, a place where molecular testing can be helpful too, particularly if you have, you know, let's say something like that where you really have all the mutational information. Um, And then if you know that there are no high risk mutations or you have an isolated RAS mutation, you know, those nodules tend to be very non-aggressive. And even if they are malignancies, those are probably the ones we will become comfortable actively surveilling as we have more data in the future. I
3: agree. But, you know, it's interesting, though, because if we just talk about the numbers, when we get a benign FNA of a large nodule, we know that the false negative rate of a benign biopsy is probably like 4%, 3 or 4%. And we're saying, oh, okay, we can watch this. When we get an Affirma or thyroceic and it's benign, it's benign uh, false uh, negative rate is probably like 6 7%. We're like, ah, that's okay. You get a Bethesda 3, the baseline risk is 10, percent The risk of it being follicular is probably way less than that. And the probability of it being occult metastatic disease is even lower. We're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We can't do this. This is crazy. No, I think, so I think I,
0: your, your point is well taken. Uh, the other thing I would man, this is kind of getting into, really getting into like the, the, the fine details into it. But when you have a Bethesda 3, you know, I, I really like to look at what my cytopathologist writes, and often I'll just talk to them because there's two Bethesda three. There's the AUS, and then there's a the plus, right? And the AUS to me is actually more concerning, because if you look at it, there's, there's there's data out there to show that often it's the atypias, it's it's the nuclear atypia that they're looking at, and you know many cytopathologists would classify it as a Bethesda five, and not Bethesda three, and that totally changes their management now, right? So if you take a The AUS folks out of Bethesda 3, then I feel very comfortable following. It's that AUS folks that often could be Bethesda 5 if it's reinterpreted by another cytopathologist. And there's a great paper by um, Sabas et al. from I think it was 2012, 2013. They took a look, they they looked at these, you know, all thyroid nodules, and I think 185 nodules, give or take. Um, And it's in the the annals of uh, of internal medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, And they did uh, inter and intra observer variability of the cytopathologists. And what they saw was that 75% of the cytopathologists, all right, when it came to indeterminate nodules, there was no concordance, all right? Benign, malignant, high rate of concordance. But for indeterminate nodules, all over the place. And even the same cytopathologist looking at the same slides 30 days later, (laughs) there was discordance around 70%. This is a very, (laughs) I remember reading this study. It's extremely disturbing, you know, (laughs) but consistent, yeah, it's, it's, it's an art as much as it is a science. You know? And so unfortunately, I, I don't think we just, we don't, we don't know. And I think that's the reason why there's so much confusion and you can't get your head around this because we generally just don't know. But the papillary cancer, we know it's papillary cancer. Yeah. But this is like, I don't know, maybe it could be this, it could be that, I'm not sure. I so.
1: also just want to jump in for all of the listeners out there who need a refresher on the Bethesda criteria, listen back to our second episode where we talk about what all these acronyms are standing for.
4: And I think that's a great point that even though the risk of follicular carcinoma is probably still very low, um, if that does happen, it can be very significant. It can be a patient with, you know, distant metastatic disease that you would never have discovered. So maybe a rare event, but that's very significant. Low risk, high stakes
2: can tell you so yeah so the, the fundamental question here is what to do with an indeterminate nodule in the absence of molecular testing right and I think some of the key takeaway points are so far lean on the sonographic characteristics that will help you sort of sub risk stratify within the range of what roughly 10 to 20 percent risk of malignancy in this category in the refi- revised Bethesda uh, um, uh, guidelines but uh, refined Beth- revised Bethesda categorization. Uh, I'll have to say that um, I treat Bethesda 3 and Bethesda 4 in this situation differently. Bethesda 4, absence of molecular testing, I will often go to, go to surgery. Um, because we think of the probability you can prevent that op- an operation in that person. They're going to come back for a repeat biopsy. What's that going to say? Molecular testing, half of molecular testing ends up being still suspicious. You still, right? And I think that, that rate is higher for Bethesda 4. So um, Bethesda 3 I think there's a high probability that the patient will ultimately be able to avoid surgery in a lot of Bethesda 3s. There are many routes to this, right? The traditional route is repeat the biopsy, standard cytology, benign, stop, right? Often that happens on the repeat FNA. So there are many ways in which this patient can avoid surgery, and I would probably wait, reassure, bring them back for another biopsy. Uh, Masha makes a great point that if you have an indeterminate nodule and you have a thyrosite test and there are no th- high-risk mutations, the bad behavior ones are gone from that, from that group. And so those I would be much more inclined to observe. Well, well
5: fortunately, we have some more clarity for our patient <laughs> here. She undergoes a repeat FNA and the molecular testing is suspicious for malignancy with a BRAF B600E mutation seen. What's your approach at this point? So this is probably, this falls into that
0: AUS category as opposed to the F, as opposed to the plus category, right? Because the fact that you see a BRAF V600E mutation almost always means that it's gonna be a papillary thyroid cancer, 99%, give or take, I mean. Yeah. So, so, you know, and you think of these thyroid nodules as indeterminate nodules that are either falling in a RAF pathway or a RAS pathway, right? And the RAF ones, R-A-F, the RAF ones are gonna be papillary cancers, right? And so this is most likely gonna be a papillary cancer. Um, it's a 1.5 centimeter right. said right? That's correct. The other side is normal? There's, yeah. Okay. So now you can talk to the patient. Now, 1.5 maybe is slightly higher than our comfort level for active surveillance, okay? Um, so I think, you know, you can you can debate that and depending on the location of the nodule, if it's truly intrathyroidal, um, not surrounding any other, you know, uh, concerning the uh, you know, side of the posterior capsule, you the esophagus, or recurrent nerve, etc. cetera. Um, it's not unreasonable to offer that. Um, I would think that most people in this situation uh, would probably opt for something along the lines of a thyroid lobectomy. Um, and I always have a conversation with all of my patients saying that clearly if you find something intraoperatively that looks invasive or there's evidence of metastatic disease regionally, then we would do a total thyroidectomy at that point. Right. So I just want to make the point first that um,
4: BRAF, V600D mutations are pretty rare. Um, in indeterminate thyroid nodules. However, it's extremely informative. You know, usually the molecular test results, um, you know, they'll say it'll be a 50% risk of malignancy if it's suspicious. But with a BRAC mutation, you now know it, it's pretty much papillary thyroid cancer. So even though it's a, a very uncommon occurrence in indeterminate thyroid nodules, it's very informative. And then, you know, the next question is, you know, what is what everybody's thoughts of extent of surgery with a BRAF v 600 mutation given some data that maybe those tumors can be a little bit more aggressive?
3: Um, well, the first thing is that, you know, in medicine you should never say never, and I definitely had a patient last year that had a BRAF mutation that I was like, oh, 100%, you have yeah, thyroid cancer, so we need to go to surgery and take out the lobe and it's some weird adenoma that is, that is non-malignant. So weird things I can it's happen. It was a V600E mutation, not like our <clears throat> K mutation. That's right. And so, um, I don't know what happened, but you know, 99% is probably better than 100%. I agree. Never say never. Never say
0: always. (laughs) We talked about this in the
3: previous pod. I'm definitely, you know, a believer that the BRAF mutation tells you that it's papillary, but in the absence of other things that tell you that the patient is high risk, sonographic ETE, lymph node involvement, you know, uh, at just a basic bland 1.5 centimeter nodule, that's just like all the other papillary and thyroid cancers and the B-reputation doesn't affect how I think about it, in which case I would just do a thyroid lobectomy for extensive surgery.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, I think to keep in mind, you know, very, a very small percentage of papillary cancers behave aggressively, right? And up to 40% of all papillary cancers can have a B-reputation. So it's, you know, the B-reputation in and by itself does not indicate aggressive behaviors and it's in combination, like you said, with, with other mutations that would worry.
5: I think that's going to be another good segue to the next question. Um, so <laughs> let's say the patient did get a total thyroidectomy and the final pathology comes back showing a 1.5 centimeter tall cell variant PTC. Now the patient refers to the internet again before coming into the, to your office and shows up and asks if she'll need radioactive iodine. What's your
0: so, so this is actually just a paper that just, just came out um, uh, from, from, from our colleagues in New York City uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering talking about that particular situation, looking at tall cell variants specifically in this subset of patients and in, in what we would call low-risk patients in general, and they did not show that the tall cell variant had any higher risk of, of, of uh, you know, recurrence or overall um, uh, change in their prognosis just based on the fact that it was tall cell alone. Um, for smaller tumors, less than less than 2 centimeters specifically. And so based on this, I would do nothing else for this patient observation, follow the patient, but I would not recommend radioactive iodine.
4: So I, I would agree with you, um, but I will say we've had several of these cases presented at our um, multidisciplinary tumor board. And in general, the endocrinologists tend to be very uncomfortable uh, with not giving radioactive iodine ablation. I think in the ATA risk stratification, these patients are still intermediate, considered an intermediate risk for recurrence. Um, and so there's, I think generally in the community, there's still a feeling that the patients should get radiative an ablation, but personally having operated on some yeah. of these patients, they seem very low risk in the operating room with yeah. a small intrathyroidal tumor. And it, um, you know, my personal feeling is, is similar that they probably don't need any, any more treatment. Right.
5: Okay.
0: It's great
4: to have data now. But there's a data that. support, and
0: I think
5: you know, and
0: then that communication between the endocrinologist and the surgeon is critical in this situation, right? Because um, as a surgeon who's in the operating, you you saw the tumor, you knew exactly what was going on, and you know, like when this comes out, you know, pretty easily, if there's no invasive features and no lymph nodes, you feel very confident that this is not biologically aggressive tumor. And so over treatment with radioactive iodine, in this case, that would exactly what I would call it. Call over treatment with radioactive iodine. Radioactive iodine is not without its own risk. There's also data coming out showing the risks of radioactive iodine, right, and secondary malignancies, cetera. So,
5: um, yeah, I would really, I would really be, you know, careful in, in over treating uh, mm-hmm. these patients. Right. I think just to wrap up this case, um, if there was one perithyroidal lymph node which showed a Microscopic focus. They just don't give up, for you? <laughs> 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 so, will this change your
0: mind? <laughs> what was the size of a metastatic focus? <laughs> I think. Uh, is there sorry. a size <laughs> that one? <just>, yes, yes. <laughs> so, <that's, laughs> a, that's good. so, so you know, it, we, we do see that very often. We we often see patients even lobectomies. You know, that this patient had a total thyroidectomy, which actually to me is like, okay, I really wouldn't worry. But the bigger question often ends up happening when you do the lobectomy in the patient and you end up with a perithyroidal lymph node, is there any benefit in going back and taking out the other side now for surveillance purposes of radioactive iodine? And, you know, these are incidental lymph nodes, right? You, you did not see anything sonographically. You didn't see anything clinically in the operating room. These are removed as you remove the thyroid, These are small lymph nodes in the capsule or whatever. Uh, you know, the metastatic focus is like, you know, less than, less than five millimeters. I'm not worried at all. Uh, you know, that's very, very common, um, and we are, And there's data, the historical data, showing that in general the rate of occult metastasis in papillary thyroid cancer could be up the level of 30%, right? Um, and these patients all do well. So I, I, would not, I would not, at this point, offer any further treatment. We try to get you, but we could <laughs> 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 so,
2: so there's some confusion in the field about the influence of BRAF mutations on prognosis. And originally Mingzhao Xing from Hopkins at the time he was at, the time he was at Hopkins, came up pretty strongly with literature showing there were increased risk of recurrence and poor outcome. Uh, now we're getting much more refined about our, di- uh, our understanding of BRAF. And BRAF seems to interact with things. Did you guys cover this? So it interacts with patient age, interacts with patient sex. So the older male patient with a BRAF mutation is gonna do worse. If you're young, you seem to be impervious uh, to BRAF. Um, what we've learned from pathology conference is that the BRAF mutation and tall cell variant are highly collinear. It may, saying BRAF positive may be the molecular equivalent of saying it has tall cell variant or tall cell features. But what the MSK paper shows is that isolated BRAF mutations are not terrible. And they don't seem to, to make things that much worse. It just is one of several things that has to occur.
1: Thanks, Dr. Ye. So, um, you know, to wrap up, I just want to thank Dr. Patel for joining us. I also um, want to turn the listeners' attention back to our very first podcast where we review NYU's um, Abstract, which is now a paper in surgery that talks about um, patients with nephrolithiasis and opportunities there to diagnose primary hyperthyroidism. So take a listen to that first episode if you haven't yet. And for all you listeners out there, NYU is also starting an endocrine surgery fellowship. So, amazing opportunity uh, to be in an awesome part of Manhattan, training with Dr. Patel himself.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much and dominate the day. <laughs> boop, 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 boop,
1: boop.
0: <laughs> be sure to check out our website at www.behindtheknife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review.